0: Our scripture lesson this morning comes out of Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. Her sister, his sister, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. So we've been working on this sermon series and the one before it where we were reading through these great stories in Genesis about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then finally Joseph. Remember, when Jacob came along his name was changed one night when he was struggling with a mysterious man to Israel which means one who strives with God this whole idea of staying engaged with God through the good and the bad through the struggles and the victories is a part of the theme throughout Genesis and now even on into Exodus we didn't read chapter 1 but in chapter 1 we are reminded that Joseph was great in Egypt After several twists and turns, he ends up there. He ends up saving his whole family, you remember. The 11 brothers all come south to be with him. They reconcile. And then chapter 1 of Exodus tells us further that they grew and multiplied in number and influence across the land of Egypt. But then chapter 1 also tells us this. Joseph and all his brothers died And then a Pharaoh came into power, and that Pharaoh did not remember Joseph. That pharaoh or king, as some of the passages call him, was paranoid. He began to really see the Hebrew people growing in number and influence as a threat rather than as part of the prosperity and the goodness that's happening in in their country. He began to worry that they might somehow want to take over. They might be a threat to him personally. So he went to some midwives who helped deliver the babies of the Hebrew families, and he instructed them to kill every baby born, every boy that was born to the Hebrew children. Well, the midwives did, said okay, but they did not cooperate. The king was even more enraged and frustrated, so he finally said to all the Egyptians, Any time! You see a young boy being born to the Hebrews, grab them and throw them into the river. He was a genocidal tyrant. He is ready to kill every baby boy because of his feeling of being threatened. So when we began to read here in chapter 2 this morning, the situation looks bleak for the Hebrew people. But we need to remember God has promised them descendants. Remember, all the ancestors had these covenant promises that if they would respond to God's leading, God would use them to bless the world. And one of the blessings would be descendants more numerous than the stars or the grains of the sand on a beach or the dirt on the earth. But rather than the Pharaoh seeing them as blessing to them and to the world, He sees them as a threat. He wants to eliminate any power, even though he's still using them as slave labor in his country. So this story not only gives us this context of this ruthless ruler now in power in Egypt and oppressing these Hebrews, but it also gives us this birth narrative of Moses, that he was born into the midst of this horrible context but we need to know about that because later in the narrative god is going to do significant things through moses for the people but moses is not the hero just yet he's not the hero in this story he's only being born his mother sister and pharaoh's daughter are the heroes in the story today but you can see the sexism of the time reflected in the text even though these three women. Are going to be the heroes of the story none of them are named we don't learn their names in this part of the narrative they're all identified by the most important male in their family but later in the story in other places where we're being told about the history of Israel and given the genealogies we learn the names of these women Jochebed Jochebed is the mom that comes up with this plan to save her son Miriam is his sister who stands close by and takes the chance of stepping into this situation to try to save and daringly save her brother. Bithia is Pharaoh's daughter who cooperates with these two Hebrew women to save this boy she names Moses. Jochebed, this bold mother, knowing what Pharaoh has said, devises a plan anyway to save Moses. She is the pivotal character in the narrative that we've just read this morning, this first part of Exodus chapter 2. Despite what Pharaoh says, she decides she needs to try to save this boy. Listen again to verse 2 and 3 as this part of the story is described. The woman conceived. And bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. She is acting on behalf of life, even though Pharaoh has ruled death has commanded the midwives and then all of his people to kill all the boys born to the Hebrew mother. She decides that she cannot cooperate with that or allow that to happen. She's going to do something different. She's going to act on behalf of life. And I think she is so creative here as well. Remember the Pharaoh says the boys must die. Throw them in the river. So technically, that's what she does. Now she adds to the formula a floating basket to save her son. But how creative that she still puts Moses in the river water as the Pharaoh had commanded. Moreover, she is courageous though. Not only does she come up with this plan against the powers that be, but she also steps forward to be the nursemaid when the time comes But then, perhaps even more significant, after she has nursed this child and weaned him and seen him grow and certainly bonded with him, she relinquishes control of her son to this household, this royal household, who wants to kill all of the boys of Hebrew descent. How magnificent is her faith. How wonderful that she's willing to trust that God is at work here and even in the Pharaoh's household through the Pharaoh's daughter, she returns the child, entrusting the care of her own son, knowing, of course, that if she's found out at any point she could be killed, the boy would surely be killed, and maybe her whole family would be put to death. But she is not discovered or at least not turned in if the Pharaoh's daughter understands what's happening. It's very interesting here. One of the Bible commentators I read this week really helped me see the bigger picture of all this. I want to read to you a few lines of what she wrote. She points out the deep and the dusty parts of First Chronicles, another book in the Hebrew Scriptures, where they list the long genealogies of the people of Israel, we find this note under the descendants of Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. It says this, One of Mered's wives gave birth to Miriam, Shemai, and Ishba, the father of Estomoah. These were the children of Pharaoh's daughter, Bithia, whom Mered had married. It appears that Pharaoh's daughter later becomes a part of the Hebrew people. She's not only joined them in spirit, but she's joined them in marriage and through childbirth. Bithya becomes an integral part of God's work of blessing and revelation. Just think about what she has done. She leaves this royal household where she lives at the epicenter of power and wealth. She gives up her power, her status, her wealth. She sacrifices it all. And apparently not only raises Moses, but follows him into the wilderness when God leads the people out of Egypt. For 40 years, she's living in the wilderness with the Hebrew people. So she is cooperating not only with Jacobed and Miriam to save this one boy, but she becomes a part of the larger work of God Through the Hebrews. It is a remarkable story that she's made such a choice, that she's grown in faith, I think you could say in this way, I think is often overlooked. But what struck me as I read over this again and again this week is how often the Bible describes this scenario where people are in desperate circumstances. And then out of these horrible circumstances, in this case, living under the tyranny of a genocidal ruler, good can arise. Faith can grow. Remarkable things happen in people's lives, in the life of the community of the faithful, because God is at work even in those terrible circumstances. Did you celebrate Tuesday Tuesday was the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. It's the amendment that enshrined in our legal code the right for women to vote. It reminds us also that as a nation, as great as we are and as wonderful as our democracy is, that we have these huge blind spots sometimes in terms of how we function and how we see other people. Our country had been a nation almost a hundred years without women having the right to vote. In the mid-1800s, women began to ask and then agitate and advocate for the vote. They worked on it decade after decade after decade. They moved from the 1800s into the 1900s still without the vote. And then our nation ends up in World War I. It's a perilous time. We finally come out of that. And then there's this global flu pandemic that we have all become more aware of recently because of our own pandemic. But the one in 1918 and 1919 killed 50 million people worldwide. It was devastating in so many communities. And yet these strong and wise women persevered through all of that. So by the time we get to 1919-1920, finally Congress is taking up legislation to give them the right to vote. They continue to work on that. These amazing women, articulate women, they're riding, they're having rallies, they're having parades, they're moving around the country encouraging men and women to think about what it means to be a part of a democracy and how could we have half the people basically in our democracy not having the right to vote And finally, their efforts come to fruition, even though some of them during that are arrested, some of them are beaten in prison. If you haven't read the history of some of this suffragist movement, it's amazing history how these women in difficult circumstances persevere, seeing the right to vote as a pillar of our democracy, meaning that all the people get to help make decisions for the nation. Well, finally, Congress passes it, and then several of the states, Tennessee being the last on August 18, 1920, ratify the amendment, and the women finally have the right to vote. But unfortunately, the fight is not over then. Mary McLeod Bethune, African-American educator, activist, and Methodist, had started, had founded a school an educational institution for black girls in florida the night before the first election when she was ready to go vote the ku klux klan visited her property tried to intimidate her and still fear in her told her she had no business going to the polls the next day these Hooded Klansmen were trying to send a message not only to her, but all the women of their city in Florida. They had no business going to the polls, and if they did, bad things were going to happen. But Mary McLeod Methune would not be deterred. She went and voted the next day. She was a strong part of this women's suffragist movement as well as a movement for education of girls and empowerment of African-Americans. But across the South, many people were intimidated and were not allowed to vote either by violence or intimidation or Jim Crow laws that came later to disenfranchise them from their right to vote. And unfortunately, a lot of the people who were trying to suppress the vote came from Christian churches We have to recognize how pervasive this idea of white supremacy has been in our country, and it's affected so many people in our midst. Even though women gained the right to vote in 1920, it wasn't until four years later that a different act had to be passed so that Native American women had the right to vote. It wasn't until 1943 that Chinese Americans... We're even seen as citizens, and that's when Chinese-American women finally had the right to vote. And the list goes on. The fight has really not come to an end yet. Awareness of oppression, awareness of voter suppression... Awareness of any time one group of people violate or exploit or use another people in an abusive way helps us. Now, it's hard to see it when it's happening because it's so terrible. But it gives us a chance to connect with this story today from the pages of Exodus. People struggling for freedom has a really long history. It's an ongoing fight. It's a battle that still rages today, not only in our country, but around the globe. But Exodus does us a favor because Exodus reminds us that God is often seen working on the side of the downtrodden and the oppressed. So often when we get caught up in these conflicts, these political differences, we do not recognize that perhaps God is not on the side of the status quo, that maybe God is the one prompting those who are agitating for the vote or for something else, that maybe God is at work in all of this. It's so difficult to see sometimes because it makes us all so very uncomfortable. But if God is working on the side of the downtrodden and the oppressed, then we might begin to look differently to find where God is in our day. There are stories, not just this one, but throughout the Bible, that tell this same kind of story of God helping those who are marginalized, those who have been set aside, those who have been abused. You can see it in the story of Jesus, of course, so clearly. When the children are coming, the disciples are trying to stop them. Jesus says, oh no, let the children come. When people are hungry, the disciples want to send them away, and Jesus says, oh no, feed them. In this time, in the Bible times, that we're reading about in Exodus, but also in Jesus' time, centuries later, women are ignored and pushed aside. What does Jesus do? He engages with women throughout the stories of his life in the Gospels and empowers them to be in meaningful ways. Ministry and treats them with dignity and respect, listens to their concerns, responds to them in ministry. He tells the story of when a man is being beaten up, and how does it end? It reminds us that we're to be the ones who go to the aid of those who are beaten and oppressed and thrown aside. Oh, you just see it throughout so much of jesus's story when he's talking about the most oppressed in the world when he calls them the least of these he says you should give them a cup of water when they're thirsty a plate of food a set of clothes he says whenever you welcome the stranger or the immigrant or the oppressed whenever you visit someone in prison or someone who is ill you're not just visiting them or extending care and mercy to them But he says, in fact, you are serving me. So whenever we begin to see the face of Christ in those who are oppressed, those who are marginalized, those who are poor, those who are put in prison, those who have been pushed aside, anytime we begin to ask who's being marginalized in our society, Who do we treat as expendable? Who is being ignored and needs aid or help or support? Who is crying out for someone to step up and help them? Anytime we do that, we're beginning to focus this biblical lens of God working on the side of the oppressed and downtrodden. Now, so often we kind of get stuck and comfortable in our own ways and kind of like everything to be kind of calm and stable. And so if somebody else is agitating, we get irritated. We get suspicious. So often we write those people off. But the biblical narrative reminds us, this one we've read today and so many others, that god is at work in mysterious ways in the world and these bible stories give us a new lens to look and see what might god be doing in the world in our day and what do we need to be doing to align ourselves with god's work in the world exodus is an invitation to step into this holy story So that we might be a part of God's work of embodying hope to those most in need. We can be a part of God's work. Even though we don't have power, this story makes so clear that the women who are the heroines here didn't have all the power in the story. But they were bold, creative, courageous. They were willing to take a risk. On behalf of life on behalf of love on behalf of hope where are you in God's story what is God calling you to do what invitation are you sensing through these Bible stories that we're reading they're all talking about struggle and times of struggle and striving with God and yet we find time after time this narrative of even out of difficult and desperate circumstances God is present God is at work. God is here for us. And as we respond to God, we become part of God's work in the world. Amen. And thanks be to God.